Welcome to Feminist Learning Out Loud, the podcast where feminists learn out loud. What is learning out loud? It's the practice of recognizing no one is perfect, perfection is not the goal, and progress is made when we are open, humble, and willing to keep doing better. This podcast is great on its own or as a companion to the Feminist Campaign School. Are you interested in running for municipal office in your community? The Feminist Campaign School links progressive values-based leadership with representation and supports participants in running for school boards, city council, and the mayor's office. And of course, only in Vancouver, a seat on the parks board. We are your hosts, Nadine Nakagawa and Trudy Goals. We welcome you in your current mood, doing your current thing, and in your current place. Intro music is an original piece by Rose at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. It is titled One More Sleep Until the Fall of the Patriarchy. This podcast is recorded on the land stolen from the Hunkmeenan-speaking people. According to the First People's Language Map of British Columbia, Hunkaminam is spoken in the Lower Mainland in the Fraser River Delta and up the Fraser River to Fort Langley. We are updating this land acknowledgement as we learn more about the people whose territory we live on, both historically and in the present. We'd like to know what you're learning about the land that you live on. Please drop us a note. We strive to make our work accessible and inclusive. If there is language, ideas, or ways we are presenting our information that could be improved, we'd love to hear from you. We'll leave our contact information in the show's notes for you. This season's podcast is inspired by our first cohort of the Feminist Campaign School. We launched the Campaign School by asking a series of five questions to a panel of elected representatives. The questions, topics, and themes from our Campaign School are power and influence, picking the elected seat or the unelected position of power to do your work from, how we show up and who challenges us, speaking up and being heard, and running alone while building a larger movement. Hi, everyone. On today's podcast, uh, this is Trudy, and I'm going to be hosting this one alone because my guest is Nadine Nakagawa. Hi, Nadine. Hi. Before we jump into you, um, do you want to talk a little bit about how maybe our land acknowledgement is changing? Mm -hmm. So... We started out um, acknowledging the Kakite First Nation, which is also known as New Westminster Indian Band, and the Coast Salish people. And then it was brought to our attention that Coast Salish is actually a colonial term. And when we talk about Coast Salish people, we're recognizing everyone from the Haida to uh, the New Chalnoth to the Kakite and the Musqueam Squamish Tsleil-Waututh. But it's giving away this territory to people who were never here and it's not their territory. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, so then we started talking about um, listing all the different nations who we understand were on this territory. So that includes the Kakite, as well as the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, the Kuantlan, the Coquitlam, the Stolo, um, the Swasin. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of different nations who have some connection to this territory. But then it was recommended that we actually reference the territory using the language spoken, so Hunkaminam. But then we've also learned that the Kakite Nation said that they speak Halkomelam, so a different dialect of the same language. So that's not making, that's not acknowledging their presence on this land. The Squamish also don't speak Hunkaminam. I believe they speak Skohomish. So 
there is uh, there's complexity here and it's ongoing learning. And the truth is, is that we can't get it right because colonialism has so impacted our understanding of this territory that we have to, um, there's a lot more work to be done with Indigenous nations who who claim this territory and working on Indigenous sovereignty before we get to a place where I think it's, it's actually even accepted by the nations themselves. So again, this is just ongoing learning, trying to be better, but not trying to be perfect. So for the next iteration of this podcast, we will be re-recording the land acknowledgement, won't we? I guess so. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about you. So Nadine, um, let's start first with how about if you tell us a little bit about you? Okay. So I am a first term city councillor, but I also describe myself before that as an organizer and an activist. Um, I've done frontline social service work. I've worked in provincial politics. I've worked on a number of different electoral campaigns and issue-based campaigns. And I am a renter. Um, I'm one of the first people of color ever elected to New Westminster City Council. Um, and I'm somebody who uh, cares deeply about representation politics. But I've really developed my analysis to understanding that representation isn't it. I get asked to speak about that a lot. I'm really trying to tie it in with it's not just about people who are more diverse, because that is tokenizing. It is people who are diverse who are going to stand up for those communities. Well, I want to dig into some power questions with you. I also want to ask you something that I think you get asked quite often, and I have other people ask me about you quite often. It's how did you decide that city council was the right place for you to be? There have been various times when I've wanted to run for different political offices. When I was 18, I wanted to be the Prime Minister of Canada, and people thought that was quite funny and precocious, but um, I, I know I didn't really know anything about politics, truly. The, one of the advantages of city council in cities outside of the big cities in BC is that there aren't party structures. So we don't have really divisive partisan politics like we do at other levels of government. So there's a real advantage there because you can work more collaboratively with your colleagues. And, you know, if you're in opposition in provincial or federal government, you're not getting anything passed. Any bill that you bring will be defeated simply because you brought it. And that is a horrifying uh, story about our state of politics in Canada, that if you have a great idea, the party won't like the governing party won't support it because they didn't bring up the idea. That's horrible, but it's true. So unless you want to just sit there and criticize the government, then, you know, you, and you don't have control over whether or not you're in government or you're in opposition. You, you, you run your local campaign and then the parties are elected and the chips fall as they are. In local politics, there's a lot more opportunity to see your work come to fruition and to see it come more quickly and to actually make changes. So an a really simple example is that um, when I was first elected, the city was working on a tree policy. And there's a consultant who brought forward some recommendations on where we should plant trees in our community. And I strongly advocated that the areas that should be prioritized are the areas where people don't have access to green space and don't have backyards. So the brow of the hill and downtown are the places that are high rises and rentals. The brow of the hill is also the most newcomers. So whether like immigrants and refugees are also people who are moving from outside of New Westminster, a lot of seniors, a lot of racialized communities, you know, poor people, um, people with disabilities. And to me, that should be the top area for trees to be planted. And trees have just gotten planted there. And so it's a small piece of the puzzle. Obviously, we're not solving climate change with those trees, but seeing trees being planted in front of your house is um, because you advocated for a change is really a 
a gratifying piece of work that I think is a lot harder to see at uh, what we call senior levels of government. So federal and provincial politics. So local politics is really gratifying that way. Um, I think also because it's closest to people, we have opportunities to bring more people in and make a difference in our communities. So welcoming people into local government politics is maybe an opportunity to engage them at other levels as well on issues that matter to them because we know that there's the lowest voter turnout at the local level. So if we can get people to vote at the local level to care, to understand how policies impact them, then that will trickle upwards as well. That's actually an interesting segue into what else I was just thinking about. So being able to see your work come to fruition quickly while it's quite gratifying, is actually quite a powerful space to be in. So how do you feel about holding that much power in our city? Well, getting some trees planted doesn't feel like a whole lot of power. I could have probably just, you know, put a shovel in the ground and planted those trees myself. But um, I think one of the interesting things is how people read power. So there's a lot of people who will call you by a formal title, you know, and it's so funny because I went from a place where nobody could pronounce my last name my entire life and just butchered it and didn't care. Just was like, I'm just going to call you whatever I want to a place where I walk into um, a building a position as, you know, a room of power being council chambers with people who are mostly older than me uh, being city staff. And they all get my last name right. And they all call me by a formal title, Councillor Nakagawa. That is a stark change. So it's interesting to see the people who call you by that formal title and people who are just sort of like, Oh, are you the mayor's secretary or what are you doing here? So power, I think, is always contextual. It is never something in and of itself. It always matters where you are, who you are, and how people read that power. So I think where it matters most is when people who have never seen themselves represented or never had anyone care about them see you in that position, maybe standing up for them or talking about issues that matter. Um, I mean, I make a point of saying sex workers as much as I can in council chambers because that's never been talked about and it makes people uncomfortable. I also talk about race a lot. I talk about black and indigenous people and people of color. People feel uncomfortable. You can visibly see that they that they move and they're uncomfortable when I when I use these terms. And yet it matters. Like we can't just talk about people or like there's people who, you know, are diverse like we can't we can't brush over it so i think there's ways to use your power to unsettle but that power is very small and it doesn't just exist in the world in and of itself it exists because we say it exists and there's some people who say it doesn't exist like i have no power so yeah always contextual i get that it's contextual but i think that you also have a good understanding of when people assume you have power or when you have influence to be able to change something and then using that opportunity to actually take action in that moment. So how do you identify when it is the right moment to take action and use that influence for good or for evil, whichever it might be? Hmm. When is it the right moment to use the power? I think I tend to try to use it when, depending on who it is, who's asking it, right? So if it's people who have been historically 
um, marginalized or historically not talked about, then I'm much more likely to amplify that. So for an example of this is we had a bunch of young people who were immigrants or refugees come to council chambers and ask that we support a motion to allow permanent residents the right to vote. And these are folks who you rarely see in a council chamber, people under the age of 20, uh, you know, black young women, uh, racialized women, you know, wearing, women wearing hijab. And they were asking that they basically be given the right to vote. And I would bend over backwards to bring that motion. And so the city of New West did, did support it and then brought it to the Union of BC Municipalities and we... Uh, amongst other, you know, other municipalities as well, debated it. And we actually won that at UBCM and I didn't think we would. Um, But I think like I would bend over backwards for those young women. I would do pretty much anything that they asked me to do because they are people who don't have a history of asking. Um, But then there's other things that I just simply can't prioritize because they're for people who I think have tons of ability to find other solutions or to advocate for themselves or... Um, again, have always been centered in the dialogue. And I don't think that it's their issues are wrong. Like I'll give an example is drinking in parks. I don't really care. And I think that there's a racialized aspect here that, you know, black and indigenous and people of color have most been targeted in parks by police and by law officers. And if they're drinking in parks, they are more likely to have people come up to them than if it's some seniors who are white drinking a bottle of wine. So it's the same issue, different impacts. And yet the people who seem to be asking for this are people who want to enjoy, you know, their uh, craft beer in the park or drink their bottle of wine in the park. And I just can't, I don't care. I'm fine with it, but I also can't get behind prioritizing it because if I ask staff to draft that bylaw, it takes them away from something else that might actually more impact a more marginalized community. So yeah, it's popular to like allow drinking in parks, but that's the difference I think between like populism and actually having policies that are reflective of your values and thinking about who does this actually impact. Again, I think there is an impact on racialized communities, but that's not who's asking for it. So I think we also have to consider that as well. That doesn't seem like a priority for those communities. That's actually a really thoughtful answer. Thank you for that. Um, So thinking about then... I love how you sound surprised. (laughs) I'm not surprised. I was trying to buy myself a little time to get to my next question. Let me be really honest here. I was thinking very deeply about what you were saying and then sort of went off on another tangent in my own head. Um, So, okay. So now then I'm thinking about, you know, using your power for things. The other side of it is when people think you have power, what do they do to try and take it away from you or to diffuse it or minimize it? Hmm. Well, again, I think it depends who you are. So for me, I think that ways that people take away my power are by stealing my ideas, taking credit for, you know, work or ideas and whatnot. And an example of this is like having a conversation with somebody about um, naming spaces and how actually, in my opinion, naming spaces after, you know, racialized women isn't the answer. Because that is a very colonial mindset, is that place names being after people. And having to argue with this person about how that's just not it. And then they later explained it back to me. And I was like, I told you that in the first place, or that was my idea. Um, And you even forgot that that was my idea. So I think that's one way is just sort of taking credit and not giving credit. Um, Other ways, I think, are um, accusing me of being divisive 
or not being nice enough. Um, this is a really common attack on women, on women of color, and especially on Black and Indigenous women, is that it's not an attack on what I'm saying, but it's an attack on the way I say it or how I show up. And it's it's as if I said it nicer than I would actually be accepted, which is absolutely not true. I mean, I'm also accused of things like race baiting, like making everything about race, um, of being a social justice warrior. Like I'm accused of all these things, but I think it's really the way that people try and take my power is by trying to push me backwards by distracting me with personal comments about myself. And so I have this Instagram series where I'm doing this work on this, like, you know, daylighting these, these comments that I receive, which are all pretty personal and, but not racist or sexist to be clear. Cause I don't think that there's anything to be made light of those or threats. Um, but there's just things like calling me an idiot or yeah, saying I'm divisive or, um, pretentious. And it, one of the ways I think it also takes away my power is that I think my power is in bringing other people in, um, that it's really about not going alone and like, trying to pull more people with you, trying to uplift more people, trying to descend to yourself from it and say like, I did this work with all these people. It was not just me. And the reason why I think that that connects to that is because it's not just me who sees that. It's all these other folks. And so I have a lot of young racialized uh, women and non-binary folks who often reach out to me and say like, are you okay? Oh, I saw this thing that wasn't very good. And all it it convinces them of is that this space isn't for them either. So it, it pushes me backwards because it, it distracts me, but it also pushes other people away from this space. And if, if your source of power is actually in community, then taking away your community from wanting to do this work with you is taking away power. Do you think that the antidote to that might be more people who are underrepresented in these elected seats? Do you think that that it will help any of it? I don't, I mean, I think, no, <laughs> I don't think so because the people who have always seen themselves represented there, that will just more make them feel that they're being oppressed. I have a really, a quote that I really like by Clay Shirky, um, that when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And I think that's a lot of what we see right now. I think what would actually help is changing the way that we talk about issues and people in our public discourse, like media, I think has a, has a major role to play in this. I think that having allies step up and step in front of it would be very helpful. But I think more than anything, we just need to sort of push on and find ways to actually build other places and spaces where we can thrive because these spaces will never be made for us. Well, that seemed, I don't want to leave this on a very down note. So let's go to one of our favorite questions. And in all of this, as you were having these deep thoughts... Where are you finding some joy? Mm-hmm. Well, I find a lot of joy in springtime flowers, which are coming out right now. I like to tell people that I have changed my life to try and make space for looking at moss and mushrooms, which people think is quite quaint, but it's actually true. It's a place of the revolution is just looking at things and considering and having time to not rush. Um, so out in nature, I'm also writing. I read a lot. Um, and I have a, an amazing community of people who are doing amazing work. And I think just having like a freedom to create is actually really exciting because I think like so many people, I was taught that you have to be a genius, exceptionally talented to be creative and sort of relearning in adulthood that actually it's about the creating, it's not about the outcome. So trying to incorporate that more and have more pleasure in the active, you know, I painted a piece of wood the other day. 
it was very pleasurable. That sounds delightful. Mm-hmm. Normally, we end these lovely podcasts with some learnings and reflections, and I'm not going to do that today because I get to talk to you about this on a regular basis. So instead, I will invite folks who have listened to this to maybe share their reflections with us or things that they might like to know more. I suspect most of them will want to hear more from you. So this might be a regular thing where I just pop some questions at you and open up some space and let you talk for a bit. What do you think of that? Well, I'm going to ask you questions next time. (laughs) I don't think that's not going to happen. Thanks, Nadine. (laughs) Thanks. 